you, some of you are, are the kind of people who, like, you read the book first, then you watch the movie. Okay, I'm not one of you. <laughs> I watch the movie first, and then maybe if I get around to it, I'll read the book. Um, and so I'm now just now getting around to reading The Lord of the Rings. And uh, now, now I know why some of you were so snobbish about the movies. Because <laughs> it does miss quite a bit. Um, love the movies, but I'm really enjoying. Um, I'm almost all the way through the first book. There are these compelling characters and situations uh, that, I'm, that I'm reading about for the first time. Um, one of these situations is, you know, when the hobbits are setting out um, on their quest to destroy the evil ring and save Middle-earth, you know, they, they have a, a fair amount of vision and purpose, and, and they have clarity about the adventure that they're called to. But one of the first places where they lose that clarity and where they lose their way um, is a place that traps them. It's a foggy and confusing land called the Barrow Downs. If you've any of you remember the Barrow Downs from the book. The Barrow Downs is a series of rolling hills. They're man-made rolling hills. And it's, uh, it's a cross between a, a very wealthy city and a graveyard. It's kind of a half-alive city. Um, it's built upon the principles of scarcity and hoarding. Under the hills dwell long-forgotten dead kings who once fought and had little petty skirmishes over land and money. And under each of the hills, are they're like little kingdoms. The kings are buried in their wealth, the wealth that they fought for. They're covered in gold and silver and jewels that they had amassed in their short lifetime. And, and haunting the hills is, a, is the spirits of those hills, spirits of death and hoarding. Um, when the four hobbits tried to pass through, they had to go through the Barrow Downs. Um, an intense fog clouded their vision, and they were suddenly isolated from each other. And um, before they knew it, the, the foul spirits of the Barrow Downs had lulled them inside the hills against their will and removed their adventuring equipment and actually dressed them in the wealth of the Barrow Downs on their heads and around their bodies just covered in gold and silver and jewels. The hobbits, they, they set out on their quest with a clear vision and a clear calling but they, they soon found themselves ensnared under a pile of wealth. And as I said, this past month we've been looking um, uh, in, in Luke, in the, our series called The Cost of the City, where we return to our vision as a church, where we are to lift high the Son of God in the city of Chicago, that all would be drawn to Him. We pay a cost for that vision as disciples of Jesus because we're seeking the new city where Jesus makes all things new. I have been blown away at our commitment to Jesus. In this past month alone, I, I have seen you respond to new ways of lifting high the Son of God in our city, making Jesus visible to our neighbors and tangible in our neighborhood and personal to our city. It's so exciting for me to see this 
And I believe that there's more to come. We'll talk about that later in our sermon and later after the, the service is over. We're going to have a vision gathering here. So I want, I want to invite you all, whether even if it's your first time here, if you want to hear about what's happening in our church and happening beyond our church, I want to invite you to stay. So we're pursuing this vision. And one of the greatest perils that we face on our journey to realize our vision is to get lulled into complacency by the promise of wealth. Whether we have a lot or a little, that promise and the comfort that it brings is a danger to every single person here, including me. Think about this. As citizens of, of Chicago, of Chicago land, we live in one of the greatest concentrations of wealth in the history of civilization. There's a lot of good to celebrate about that. Poverty itself is not a virtue. And uh, people without money can still be trapped by the promise of wealth. Um, think about this also. As citizens of 21st century America, we have access to more avenues of comfort than any generation that has come before. And those comforts are accessible and, and somewhat inexpensive and available to, to many of us. So we're in a city with a lot of concentrated wealth. We have a lot of comfort that is offered to us at every level of our life. And then some of us have more disposable income than we've ever had before. Again, it's not a bad thing. We, we're called to steward God's wealth, as we'll see later. Um, Here's the danger. We are in a city with a spirit to some degree of hoarding. And that same spirit lives in us. We see things we don't have and we're like, wow, that must be nice. I'd sure like that. I'd sure like that expense account. I'd sure like those books. I'd sure like that home. I'd sure like that computer. I'd sure like that bottle of wine, that, that chance to eat out. And in many cases... When we see something and we go, I'd sure like that, we can get it. In short, we are, get, we are in danger of getting buried in the old city. Buried in the wealth of the old city. Buried in the pursuit of wealth in the old city. Buried in the comforts that that wealth can provide. Buried under the confusing fog that can cloud our vision so easily our vision for the city to come can all of a sudden just get foggy, like instant. We can get buried under all the awesome stuff that we feel like we must have. The line between needs and wants all of a sudden becomes, becomes very unclear. So what's the answer to this danger of getting buried under the old city? We don't condemn the old city. We've said that again and again. We don't run from the old, old city, and we don't run from wealth, and we don't run from money. So how do we avoid getting buried? Jesus Christ addresses that question directly. He does it with a, with a controversial parable, parable that our children uh, played out for us today. In this parable, and in the teachings that will follow it, Jesus will help us navigate the wealth of the old city. Um, if we've been trapped, he will rescue us because he cares deeply that we do not get trapped, that we do not get buried. His light can, can scatter the confusion that so easily clouds our vision. 
Turn with me to Luke 16 if you haven't already, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at this parable and we'll consider its implications for us. Jesus has been teaching his disciples. He's also been teaching uh, the Pharisees and basically the, the, the cultural gatekeepers of the day who were themselves wealthy in many ways, not just monetarily, but also with their reputation and with their influence. And he's going to teach his disciples, but he's got a wider audience as well. Some people are going to respond really well to his message, and others are going to have a really hard time. So, verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 1, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now, some of us are, are familiar with the role of the anti-hero, okay, the Walter White, the someone who's, they're not necessarily someone that you want your life to be them, but they're kind of the hero of the story. They're very fallen, but they're presenting something that we need to pay attention to. And, and in this case, it's a, the anti-hero is a business manager who's stealing money from a very wealthy boss, from a very wealthy estate. Um, this embezzling manager is going to show us a, a kind of shrewdness um, that Jesus wants us to emulate. It's kind of a nuanced character that... that uh, and Jesus will make a nuanced point using that character. So we'll just take it one step at a time. Verse 2. Uh, and he called him and said to him, the, the, uh, the owner called the manager and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. This would be a career-ending moment for the manager. There was, uh, there was very little mobility in that society. If it came out that the most wealthy person in that region had, had fired you for stealing, you would never be manager again. Um, you could not run from your reputation. No one would hire you. Um, you couldn't make amends. You couldn't move away. You couldn't declare bankruptcy. Also, there are very few wealthy estates to manage, let alone embezzle from. Your lifestyle's over. Your livelihood is over. No one would want to help you. He was going to lose his job, and he was going to lose other forms of livelihood, and he needed to find a way to survive the age to come because the age of the present was closing quickly. So verse 3, And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. So the old order is not going to work for him and he's too ashamed to beg and he's not strong enough to dig. Um, the old ways of working for his old boss, living in his old home, embezzling the old money. The old order is coming to a close and fast and so he's got to find a new way. He's got to find it quickly. He's got to invest in something new a new reality, and a new place to live. And in this case, his own private Airbnb network. Verse 4, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, think about this, people may receive me into their houses. How's he going to do that? How's he going to create his own private Airbnb network that's completely paid for? A community of people that will just gladly take him in, gladly host him. Verse 5, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Well, he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. 
And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. And here we have a classic example of fraud on a large scale level, even by ancient standards. The embezzling manager sits down with somebody who owes money. And he's like, hey, you owe a uh, hundred measures of oil? Cut it in half. There's this implied arrangement that is being made. I'm going to give you a great deal. And at some point, you're going to pay me back 50%. You're going to give me half of the deal that I'm cutting for you. It still happens today. It happens in Chicago. Um, he does this with the person that owes the wheat as well. Now, where would you get 100 measures of oil? Where would you get all this wheat? It would take, commentators note that it would take an olive grove and acreage of wheat fields 25 times the size of a normal person's family farm. The master was wealthy. The people who were borrowing from him were wealthy as well. And this was a vast amount of money. Likely in the tens or the hundreds of thousands of dollars in our own currency. So what the dishonest manager does is builds for himself completely free lodging. So the person who, uh, whose debt he cut for the oil, he's like, hey, how's it going? Remember me? We had that conversation about the oil. Cool, I'm going to crash at your place for a few days. Is that cool with you? Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's cool with you. Where's the fridge? Where's my towels? Where's my bed? I'm not sleeping on the couch. I'll go ahead and take your bed. How about that? And then after he stays there for a few months, he goes to the person who's, uh, he cut a deal about the wheat. Hey, remember me? The, the manager, we have an arrangement. I'm staying at your house now. Throw some steaks on the grill. We're going to party. See, he's building for himself a series of dwelling places that would outlast his current wealth because his current wealth, his current power to cut deals with his master's money was running thin. There's just a few, a few granules of sand left in the hour jar. He needed a community that would outlast his wealth. He needed a network, a dwelling place that would outlast his wealth. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. This has confused a lot of people. Is Jesus praising, should we go out and commit fraud and this is the way of the kingdom? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's, remember, he's telling a story. And in the story, the boss who is about to fire the manager um, commends the estate manager for seizing the opportunity to secure a future for himself. Jesus is not saying here, therefore I tell you, commit fraud. He's helping us see the situation that we are in. Like this manager, we are manager over someone else's resources. And like this manager, we have a short window of time to invest in a new dwelling place, in a new community, in a new city. So we need to act quickly. We need to be intentional. We need to be shrewd. We need to be smart about this. We need to think about it. Why do we have to be shrewd and intentional? Why do we have to act with urgency as the dishonest manager did? Um, 
Because Jesus is going to exhort us to build the new city now so we don't get buried in the old city later. Build the new city with joy and urgency so we don't slowly get buried by the wealth of the old city. Build the new city so we don't get buried in the old city. Unless you have a dwelling place that you're investing in, the dwelling place you have will comfort and lull and bury you to death. So will the surrounding milieu. It will become comfortable and dull. And we will fall asleep in this culture. We will fall asleep in the wealth that it brings us. So Jesus is exhorting us to take the resources we have and invest them in the new city where Jesus Christ is king. As we've seen in Luke, the new city is a place where the Father spreads a feast for people who don't deserve it. It's a place of joyful hospitality where people who are weary and condemned by the old city find joy and mercy and relief in the new city. It's where people come from diverse socioeconomic and racial backgrounds and they become one family and they all join around the table of the undeserving and feast together. I was blown away last week when I shared, you know, it was just sort of a last-minute edition of, hey, who's going to reach out and run the gauntlet for the mother of the baby that tragically was killed? You know, she's being held in jail without bond. She's facing first-degree murder charges. She's facing incredible odds, and she is so sad and condemned. And who's going to reach out to her? And I had a whole group of people saying, I will, I will, I will. I will reach out to her. I will write her letters. If possible, I will go visit her. There's already this team that's formed on her behalf, seeking her, seeking her family and her extended family to show them the love of Christ in a very dire and desperate situation. So many are, are, are ready, to, ready, ready to condemn this mother. But I've seen Emmanuel Anglican Church seek out this mother with the mercy and love of the Father. That's the new city. This new city is made up of people that you'd never expect. Fellow Chicagoans that maybe you, we haven't even met yet, but, but God is seeking them. Like we talked about before, like lost sheep, like the lost coin. In this new city, Jesus is made tangible and visible and personal. And he does miracles with people. He forgives them and he heals them. And he sets them free to do good work. Just the other day, I was listening to a testimony um, from a woman who was giving her testimony at a church, different city, different state. Um, but she, gave, she was talking about how she grew up in an abusive home, uh, totally unloved given messages that she wasn't loved her whole life, the only person that would give her love were people that abused her. She was groomed for, for the life she chose as an adult, which was prostitution and, and drug addiction. And she was depressed and she was suicidal. And women from this church she was giving her testimony at reached out to her. Women that had faced similar circumstances themselves and they told her that Father loves you and Jesus loves you. And she rebuffed them at first, but over time, the message that came home that she realized, that she internalized was like, even in all of my mess, Jesus wants me. Jesus wants all of me. He, he, he wants to receive me. He wants to, to show me true love. And she took that message in and she 
she joined this, this house that some of the other women had lived in. And at the time she was giving her testimony, she had been clean for a year. And I, even though it was a podcast, I could feel the joy and the applause when she said that. This is the kind of thing that Jesus does as he is building the new city. Can you imagine a few testimonies like that at our next baptism service? That's what we seek. We seek the new city where Jesus is king, where he gives mercy and forgiveness and joy, where he brings together a family that no one else would expect. If we're lulled to sleep by the resources of the old city, we're going to miss out on the joy and the celebration of the new city. Can you imagine the new city taking hold right here in Uptown? Not just with the mother of baby Mary Diana, but with others. Can you imagine it taking hold in the neighborhood where you live? Perhaps in your own home. It is so much better for us to be celebrating within the city to come than to be comfortable and secure within the city we know. And that's why Jesus calls us to build the new city before we get buried in the old city. Jesus, you know, he started his teaching with a parable, but he's going to leave us with a warning. And I want to read that warning to you now. Verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. You know why he said this? He said this because his disciples and the other people listening and me and you and us have a fundamental flaw and that is that we are really good at talking the talk. We're really good at lip service. We're really good at, at pretending. We're really good at putting a smiling face on and to be totally lying to ourselves and everybody else about what we really care about and where our allegiance really lies. And that's why Jesus adds this challenge. That's why Jesus ups the urgency because we're so good at lying to ourselves and others about what we really care about. Jesus says, do you want to be part of the new city when it swallows up and takes over the old city? Do you want to be known as one who, who helped build it? One who, who cared about it? One who was a true citizen of that new city? Well, then don't just give it lip service. Don't just give it your inspiring thoughts. Don't just feel sentimental about it. Be faithful to the city now. If you want to be a part of the new city then, be faithful to the new city now. Be honest about your allegiance to that city and be honest with your resources. Because resources talk. Resources, say, resources make it real. All of a sudden, everything comes to the surface. The divided allegiances that we are prone to have comes to the surface because it's like fire under a plate with cracks. It, the cracks are revealed when, when we start to talk about what we do with our resources and with our money. And so Jesus is lighting a fire and saying, one who is faithful in a little is faithful in much. If you want to be a faithful citizen then, be a faithful citizen now and do so with your resources. Don't say, yeah, I belong to the city to come. I belong to the city of Jesus. But then say something different with your money. I, actually, I just really trust the old city. In the old ways. Verse 13 says this. He, he puts a finer point on it. No servant can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and wealth, capital W. We are so tempted to play both sides. We think we're strong enough to play both sides. One foot in the new city, one foot in the old. I can do this. I'm smart. I'm an American. I'm a Chicagoan. I'm an urbanite. I figured things out. I don't really have to trust God. I, I can give a token to God. I don't have to really trust him with my money. I am so tempted by that thought. But the call to build the new city isn't just a good idea. It's not just an interesting investment. It's a way out from the burial of wealth. The burial of comfort. It's a way out. The new city's a way out. It's a rescue. It's a wake-up call. It's an either-or. Either we can slide into a spiritual coma with our resources, or we can offer them to God and experience the joy of seeing Him use it to build the new city. But you can't have it both ways. There is urgency. There's urgency to give and decide in advance rather than to wait until we feel ready. And this is why as a church, as a collective body, one year ago, we were only one year in as a church, um, we asked God to lead us to start giving a percentage of our income as a church away and send it, send it from our church. Send it to other church plants Send it to the marginalized and trafficked and abused. Send it to missions where God was doing things around the world. And as we prayed and we felt led, we, we made a pre-decision with a percentage of the income that we had as a church. A pre-decision with an uncomfortable percentage that scared us. And in, in this last year, we've supported refugees in Nigeria and the sexually exploited in Chicago and churches and ministry churches and ministries beyond us. We did not feel ready, but after we made that decision, the Lord set our hearts free, and it has been so joyful to give that money away and see God provide. Next year, that percentage is going up. Again, we'll talk about it after the service. You know, it's the same with our personal finances as well. We have to make similar pre-decisions that are soaked in prayer. Lord, what are you calling me to give to the kingdom out of my income in the next year? We pray. We pray for clarity. We ask God to challenge us. And then we decide in advance. And we act in advance. You know, right in the shadow of the Barrow Downs was a very special place. We're back in Middle Earth. Um, okay. One of my favorite places in the book so far is the house of Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil's house was made from the same stuff of the Barrow Downs. Same stuff made Tom Bombadil's house as made up the Barrow Downs. But it was filled with and infused with and directed by a completely different spirit. The Barrow Downs was haunted by death, but the house of Tom Bombadil and his wife was filled with grace. Whereas the Barrow Downs was, was built on the principles of hoarding, the house of Bombadil was built on the principle of generosity. The Barrow Downs sucked the life out of people who tried to pass through it. 
tried to use them, tried to get stuff out of them, and then spit them out. The house of Bombadil was overflowing with grace. It was a place of true rest and hospitality and encouragement. And we see it play out as the hobbits stay at the house of Bombadil. They're refreshed and encouraged and built up on their journeys. Bombadil and his wife are some of the liveliest and most joyful people on Middle Earth. One of the hobbits asked the wife, does Tom Bombadil own all these lands? And she said, oh no, that would be a burden. But he is the master of these lands. One of my favorite parts of the book is when the, the hobbits leave his house and try to cross through the Barrow Downs. After they get buried, Frodo realizes that their life is in danger under that hill and he calls out um, to the true master of the land. He calls on the name of Tom Bombadil in that moment. And as soon as he speaks those words, he hears a crash and he hears a joyful song as Tom Bombadil storms the hill, brings the hobbits out into the sunshine. And then Tom speaks these words over their lifeless bodies. Wake now, merry lads. Wake and hear me calling. Warm now, be heart and limb. The the cold stone is falling. Dark door is standing wide. Dead hand is broken. Night under night is flown. And the gate is open. The hobbits wake up to the sound of his voice and the sun shines on them. And then Tom Bombadil takes the treasure that had once buried them and he sets it on the hill and as the sun shines on it, it shines brightly. It like lights up the, all of the lands. And then he takes a few pieces of the wealth and he gives it to each of them as tools and weapons on the adventure that they were originally called to. Weapons that would support and protect them on their way. He restored their calling. He restored their path. To a certain extent, no matter how much we have, all of us have been buried in our comfort. And all of us have been buried in our wealth. We need Jesus. You see, he paid the cost of the city on the bloody cross. And he did it for our freedom. He did it because the ways of the old city are not going to cut it for us. Maybe it will for a while. But in the end, it will bury us. He did it because the new city is our true home. And our true way. It is a place of freedom. This is our way in to the new city. This is our way out of our burials. And for those of us who have been lulled to sleep, those of us who have hoarded, those of us who who are lacking the joy and freedom of generosity, Jesus comes to us. We call on his name and he comes to us and he rescues us. And he sets us free and he sets our wealth free. And he makes it useful again for the true journey and the true calling that we have as individuals and as a church. I want to invite all of you to stand as I pray a blessing over you as we end this series and end this Christian year. As citizens of the city to come, receive the blessing. May Christ, the Son of Righteousness, shine upon you and scatter the darkness from before your path. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be among you, and remain with you always. Amen.